All right. Uh, we are carrying on in our study through Paul's letter to the Romans this morning. Um, we'll be in Romans chapter 6. You can go ahead and find that. We have, I know, I know graduation is uh, next weekend, so we'll have this week and next week uh, before we break away from Romans for the rest of the, the semester, which means we'll get through chapter 6 this semester, and then we're going to pick up with chapter 7 um, whenever it is that you get back after Christmas in January. So in Romans 6, we're going to cover the first half of the chapter today, verses 1 to 14. I hope you're able to read it ahead of time. I always try to put it out there. Um, you didn't even have an Auburn game to distract you. <clears throat> um, this is a really great and important passage. I feel kind of feel like a broken record saying that because you can legit say that about every passage you come to in Romans, but it's true here for sure. One reason is one that I, I mentioned last week in chapter 5 that Paul is, where, where we are in Romans, Paul is, is, is pivoting here away from, well, he, I've also been incessant to say this whole letter is about the gospel. And this whole letter is, 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 is a, just a very uh, thorough teaching of all that the gospel is and all that the gospel entails, the whole doctrine of salvation in, in the Christian faith. And, and he has been on the theme of justification by faith alone in the last few chapters. And he is pivoting now from that doctrine of justification by faith alone now to the doctrine of sanctification, okay? Um, he has been, since the end of chapter 3, just to rehearse of what we've seen, at the end of chapter 3, beginning, you know, after that climactic verse of the first section of Romans that climaxes with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From the very next verse, 324, he started this, this um, section on justification by faith alone. But for us sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, God has put forward Jesus to be our, the propitiation for our sins, to be received by faith alone. So from that point, for the next, you know, two and a half chapters, he's been on that theme of how, to put it in his words at the end of chapter 3, how can God be both just and the justifier? of the sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ. And he began, like I said, uh, to, to answer that at the end of chapter 3, but he spent chapter 4 using Abraham as, as this archetypal example in the Old Testament uh, of, of a man who was justified before God. And what that meant, he spent the first half of, of chapter 4 talking about what it meant to say that Abraham was justified. He used, he used Genesis 15, 6 as, uh, that's an important verse. He used that as the example to say that it says that Abraham was counted righteous. He was counted, he was, he was reckoned righteous, he was declared righteous, um, or as, as Martin Luther put it, simul justus et peccator. He is simultaneously, at the same time, simul, just or righteous and yet at the same time still a sinner. How can that happen? And uh, Paul had already explained, like I said, at the end of chapter 3, how it can, because the righteous one, Jesus Christ, was put forward as our propitiation and as our substitute in his life and death and resurrection. Uh, 
But the second half of chapter 4 was about, okay, if that's true, if that's how God can be just, well, how do we receive that? And that's the second half of chapter 4. We do it by faith alone, the, the faith of Abraham. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, then he spent chapter 5, at least the second half of it, summing all that up. All who are in Adam are condemned, and justly so. But now all who are in Christ, by repentance and faith, are justified and righteous. And I pointed this out at the end of last week. You could see how at the very end of chapter 5, how Paul was now gearing up to transition away from that discussion of justification by faith alone, transition away from talking about our status before God, to now talking about our daily lives of walking with God by faith in Jesus Christ. He's moving from justification to sanctification. And not to belabor the point, I just want to make sure we're all clear on the difference between justification and sanctification. I'm, I'm throwing these words out there, and I'm assuming a lot. I don't want to do that. So here's uh, the, the, the Baptist Catechism, which follows, it's an old catechism, but it follows the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here's how it defines justification and sanctification, Okay. Here's what it says about justification. Justification is, quote, an act. That's that's important word. It's an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But I pointed that word out. It is an act of God's free grace. It's a moment. It's a declaration. It is like that moment at the end of the trial when the judge hands down the verdict. It's a moment. It's an act. Justified. Not guilty. Right? By contrast, here's how it defines sanctification. Sanctification is a work. It's not an act. It's a work of God's free grace in which we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, right? It's not a momentary act of God's free grace. It's an ongoing work of it. That's sanctification. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is a moment Sanctification is a life, okay? Justification is where we're covered by the righteousness of Christ, declared to be righteous in Him. Sanctification is that process that begins at that moment where we are actually made in practice to be that, right? Um, And that's the aspect of salvation that Paul is turning to now in Romans 6. And you could see, I pointed that out last week, you could see how at the end of chapter 5 he was transitioning to that. So like in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice there in those two verses he's talking about grace and righteousness reigning reigning in our lives. That word reigning, by the way, is an important word in our passage today in chapter 6. And he notices in those two verses, he also said that even, even when 
We, even when we sin and sin increases, well, then grace still abounds all the more. That's an important idea that's going to come up in our passage. In fact, that's actually how Paul's going to begin our passage in chapter 6. He's going to begin chapter 6 anticipating somebody's possible objection to uh, what he has just said. The idea that because a person is justified freely in Jesus Christ by faith alone, apart from any works, uh, that we are that that is a fixed truth. The idea that 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 because of that, then for the rest of our lives, grace is always going to be greater than our sin. No matter how much we sin, the grace is always going to be greater. Somebody's going to object to that. And Paul, in our passage today, is going to begin countering that with a beautiful understanding of what sanctification actually is and how we ought to think about our lives of following Christ. So let's read our passage, and then we'll consider what Paul has to say. Verses 1 to 14 of chapter 6 is our text. All right, so what shall we say then? This is the objector talking, by the way. Are we to continue in sin so that grace, so that, uh, grace may abound? That's... That's the objection. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. There's that word, reign. Let not, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful and so important passage this is. Lord, I pray and first acknowledge that what we just read, every other text that we'll consider as part of our study of this text is is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, and authoritative and necessary word. And I, I, I and we together ask that as we come to this, because it is what it is, would you give us eyes to see this 
eternally important truth that Paul is teaching. Would you give us eyes to see it and then minds to understand it clearly? Hearts to love it, embrace it, wills to obey what we find are these first commands in this letter. Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We could really spend a lot of time in, these, <laughs> in this passage that I, I just read. Um, but in the time that we have, I just want to get the main message that he's, that he's conveying. Uh, if you're taking notes, here's what I'm going to want us to see, uh, uh, and I'll explain what I mean before I tell you what those are. I told you last week that I need to make a... a, a, a a correction. I told you last week off the cuff that we come across the first command in this letter, and it was in verse 12. It's not. It's verse 11. Uh, my fault. Um, two broad points. Two broad points uh, are, are what we're going to see today. Um, and here they are. First, we need to see the indicatives. The indicatives. Uh, what is that? An indicative. It's like it's, it comes from the word in, to indicate something, right? Indicative. Uh, it, an indicative is a, is a statement of fact. An indicative is a statement of fact. It's a statement of truth, a statement of reality. Here it is. I'm indicating something. This is what it is. All right? That's an indicative. And there are uh, two of them in this passage. These would be subpoints, I guess, if you're a careful note taker, under the first point. The first one in verses 1 to 4, here's the first indicative. We are dead to sin and alive in the Spirit. We are dead to sin and alive in the Spirit. That's the first indicative that he's going to lay out in verses 1 to 4. Then, in verses 5 to 10, the second indicative is going to be this. We are dead to self and united to Christ. We are dead to self and united to Christ. That's verses 5 to 10. Those are the settled, indicative truths that he's going to show provide the foundation for the second broad point, which are the imperatives. The imperatives. What is that? Imperative is another word for a command. It is imperative that you whatever. It's imperative. You must. It's a command, right? And we find the imperatives in verses 11 to 14. Uh, I'll get to those when we come to them. You might summarize those imperatives as in this way. Because we are dead to slavery, pursue obedience. Because we are dead to slavery, pursue obedience. And it's important to get this order right like, in the New Testament, the imperatives, the commands, always follow the indicatives. The imperatives always follow the indicatives. The commands always follow the truths. The, 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 the commands always flow out of and follow what is already true and settled reality in Christ. Why is that important? So that you can know and be 
100% certain of that your status before God is never dependent upon or contingent upon how well you obey. Obedience is fruit. It's never the root. So that being said, let's, let's, let's look at, at, at what Paul says here in the indicatives. And again, there are two of them. I already said what they are. And so like I said, the first indicative we find in verses 1 to 4. We are dead to sin and alive in the Spirit. Look at verses 1 to 4 again. So verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He's obje- he, he is anticipating what he knows will be an objection to those who hear what he's just said in the, in the previous chapters. He had just pointed out in chapter 5, verse 20, that because we are secure in Christ, even when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So the objection he anticipates would be this. Well, if that's true, what, what would keep us from sinning? Like, if, that, if that's true, we could, just, we could just sin all out and always know, hey, there's more grace. That's the objection of a legalist. That's the objection of one who believes that only law and harsh consequences of breaking that law, that can only, be, that, that, only that could be a good motivator to obey. I must obey or else. That that objector cannot conceive of how free grace is a better motivator to obedience than law could ever be. Uh, Because free grace grants to us what the law never could. Right? So he answers, he begins to answer the objection in verse 2, saying, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That, 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 by no means. I'm not going to say that Paul cussed right there. I don't think he did, but he, he came near it. That's the strongest, that's the strongest no that you could have said in Greek. No. He didn't, he didn't cuss, but he, he, it was strong. Don't walk away. Kevin said Paul cussed. I, 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 I did not. Um, but he, he begins to explain why he's, he is so strong against that objection. And, 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 and the question that follows is, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's this died and live. It's this idea of death and life in the verses that follow that teach us this first indicative that we are dead to sin and alive in the Spirit. Now, you might look at verses 1 to 4, and you, and you, and you might think, I don't see the Spirit mentioned at all in these verses. I see dead to sin. How are we who died to sin still live in it? I see dead to sin, so I get the first part, we are dead to sin. But I don't see the Spirit mentioned at all, so how are we saying we're alive in the Spirit? How do you get that from these verses? I think the key to seeing that is in this idea of baptism that pops up three times in these verses. He says in verse 3 that, that as believers... We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. He says in that same verse at the end, we were baptized into His death. And in verse 4, we were buried with Him by baptism into death. 
And, and in that verse, in, in verse 4, it's from that baptism into his death that we are from that, in that same act, raised to walk in newness of life. Whatever baptism is then, right there, that's the key to understanding in what way we have the death to life that he's talking about. What baptism is he talking about there? Now, when you hear baptism, we're Baptists, right? When you hear baptism, your thought immediately goes to water baptism. Um, yeah. Uh, but if that's all he's talking about, like what we see in that room in water, if that's what he's talking about, I, it's my persuasion it's hard to square all that he says results from that baptism if that's the baptism he's talking about. Can water baptism, can what happens in that room when we're gathered together, can that water and that water baptism, can it cause us to die to sin? Can that water baptism cause us to be raised to newness of life? No. Why? Because water baptism is simply uh, and merely symbolic of another kind of baptism uh, that the New Testament teaches about that can do all of those things. It can do all things. What, what baptism is that? It's baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prophesied of the Messiah who is coming, Jesus, he, he prophesied in Matthew 3, 11, I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Paul, Paul himself, the guy who's writing these words, when he was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he tells the Corinthian church, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is another way of talking about our regeneration, our being born again. That's a different way of saying the same thing. Um, how do we know that? How do we know baptism of the Holy Spirit is a different way of talking about being born again? Because Jesus said so. When, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, in, in John 3, 3, he talked about being born again. In John 3, 7, he called it being born of the Spirit. Being born again and being born of the Spirit, same thing. And so what, what we're getting at is at the very inception of our Christian life, at our conversion. It is the Holy Spirit who overcomes our sinful resistance to Christ and our sinful unbelief. He overcomes that in our spiritually dead hearts and raises our dead hearts to life so that we come in repentance and faith. That is the moment that we're justified. It's also the, the very moment that sanctification begins. Death is over. Life is new. And this, I believe, is, is first and foremost the baptism that Paul is talking about in Romans 6. Water baptism is just the outward and symbolic representation of spirit baptism that's already happened in a believer's heart. And Paul is saying in verses 1 to 4, 
That, that from the very inception of a believer's life in Christ, not only does the Spirit unite the believer to Christ, which we'll say more about in just a minute, and you see that already beginning here in verses 1 to 4, like when he says baptized into Christ, buried into his death, buried with him. More on that in a second. But Paul is saying even below all that, below being united to Christ, the Holy Spirit has enabled us. He, he, he is a power within us who has enabled us to die to the power of sin in our hearts and to walk in newness of life. He says there's new life in us through the Holy Spirit. Justification is legal stuff. This is life stuff. There's life. That's the, that is the first settled indicative that Paul mentions. In other words... You are a new creation in Christ because of the Holy Spirit in you. The Christian life is not one that is lived in your strength or your ability, but the strength, ability, and spiritual life that you have through the Holy Spirit in you. That's the first indicative. We're dead to sin, but alive in the Spirit. That brings us to the second indicative that we find in this passage, which certainly begins in those verses that we just saw but it gets even more focused in verses 5 to 10, and that is this truth. We're dead to self, but united to Christ. Dead to self and united to Christ. The believer's union with Christ has already been a strong emphasis since the, 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 the last half of the last chapter, but it gets even more explicit in verses 5 to 10 here in chapter 6. Notice the overt language that Paul uses In chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then in the verses to follow, it's a lot more of the language like I pointed out in verses 1 to 4. Like verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, we have died with him. Christ. We will also live with him, united with him, united with him, crucified with him, died with him, live with him, with, 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 united. All of that language is language of union with Christ, and that is one of the most encouraging and comforting doctrines of the Christian faith, that a believer's union with Christ is a foundation of every comfort that you have. What does union with Christ teach? At the heart of union with Christ is, well, what's the foundation of, his union with, of your union with him? At the heart of union with Christ is God's election of you. That's Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world. So God set his affection on you. He chose you even when you were undeserving. Me, I... That's, that's one. God, God chose you in Christ. That's, that's the first foundation of your union with Christ. But second, flowing out of that, Christ then came to be your substitute. He came to be your substitute. So that everything that Jesus Christ did in his life counted for you. Substitute. God now considers that 
everything that Christ accomplished in his life, it is as if you did it. When he considers your life, it's as if you did those things because you're united to him. Where he went, you went. What he did, you did in the consideration of God, of your life. That may seem a little bit abstract, but the more you dwell on it, the clearer it becomes. And then the clearer it becomes, the more precious it becomes to you. Think about what Paul says here. He says in verse 5, both that we are united to him in his death as well as in his resurrection from the dead. And he simply restates that in different ways in verses 6 through 8. What does that mean? We already saw in the last chapter, the second half of chapter 5, that when Jesus obeyed and kept the law perfectly, his obedience counted for you. The, 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 the obedience of the one man, right, in chapter 5. But here, when it says that you are united to him in his death and in his resurrection life, it means that Jesus died to bear the full judgment of God for sin and in the consideration of God of your life because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world and because Jesus was acting as your substitute, it is as if you have already died and borne the full judgment of God for your sin. It is as if you did. It's as if it already happened to you because it already happened to him. And he was your substitute. You are united to him in his death. That's why it so often says, we, I have been crucified with Christ. I've never been crucified, literally. So in what way am I, who I'm standing here well today, in what sense conceivably have I been crucified with Christ? When he was crucified, it was as if I was there. But it also means that when Jesus was raised to, raised to life again from the dead, raised to signal complete payment for sins, complete payment for the judgment against sin, victory over eternal death, now in eternal life. It means that when Jesus did that, it was as if you did that. It's already true for you because it's already true for him, and you're united to him. Everything that Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection, and even ascension, by the way, ascension, Think about that. His ascension. That's your assurance of heaven. He's already there. So it's almost as if you're already there. It is as if you're already there. You'll go there one day. And notice what Paul does in verses 9 and 10, by the way. Because verses 6 through 8 are essentially uh, restating what he said in verse 5. But he says in verses 9 and 10, We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He does a, he's doing a couple of things in those verses. One, and for our purposes here, he is saying that nothing that Christ has done can be undone. He can't be returned to the tomb. It's complete once for all. That's why he says he's never going to die again. He did it once for all. And so the first thing he's doing is just greater assurance. Like everything that Jesus did, he did as my substitute. And all, and it's as if it, when he did it, it's as if 
everything he did counted for me, and none of, nothing that he did can be undone. There's greater assurance for me and you. It's like, it's like the City of Light lyric that we sing so often in Yet Not I But Through Christ in Me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. Why? For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine. Right? The other thing he's doing in those verses is transitioning to the next point. So, uh, Paul in verses 1 to 10 has made two broad indicative points. You are, you are dead to sin and, a spirit, and spiritually alive because the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he also made you alive in Christ Jesus and he dwells in you. And you are dead to self. You are dead to self and what you deserve in yourself because you are united to Christ and what he deserves now belongs to you. But it's for both of those reasons that he transitions to the imperatives that we find in verses 11 to 14. Think about those with me quickly before we come to a close. What you find in those verses, verses 11 to 14, what you find there flowing out of the indicatives that we labored so hard to establish and what Paul labored so hard to establish in the minds of the readers, what you find here are three imperatives, three commands that naturally follow they, these, these, these imperatives, they answer the question, okay, what do I do? What do I do with those truths? What, what do I do with the fact that the Holy Spirit has given me life in Christ? Okay, what do I do with the fact that you're telling me I'm no longer dead in my sin but alive in the Spirit? What do I do now that I know that Christ was my substitute and I'm united to Him? What do I do now? And this is where... Paul is showing that the original objectors in verse 1 get it wrong. Paul is about to demonstrate that the incredible grace laid out in verses 1 to 10 provide a better foundation for obedience and godliness than mere law. He sets out three consecutive imperatives, three consecutive commands. One in verse 11, another in verse 12, a third in verse 13, before in verse 14, he dunks on the objectors and wraps it all up, reminding us that grace is better than law. His first imperative is based. His first imperative in verse eleven is based on um, the second indicative that that we're united to Christ, and then the second and third imperatives, or the second and third commands he gives, they flow out of the first indicative that we are alive in the Spirit. So look at the first imperative in verse eleven. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's the command in that verse? Consider. You also, you must consider. That's the verb. Consider. It's the same word as reckon it so. It's the same word as what God does to you in justification. He considers you righteous in Christ. He counts you. He reckons you righteous in Christ. So you, in turn, reckon it so. Count it so. Decide it. 
It flows out of verse 10 that, that told us that Jesus, your substitute, died to sin and rose to live to God. And God considers His life as yours before His judgment seat because you're united to Him. And now Paul is saying out of that in verse 11, you consider Christ's life as yours and live accordingly. If God considers Jesus' life as your life, you consider His life as your life. Like, and if you believe, if, when you do that, if, you're, if, you, if you wake up in the morning and you consider Jesus' life is my life. Like, what Jesus did counted for me. If you truly reckon that so, and consider that, if you think that becomes a license to not take sin seriously or obedience seriously, if you you think it's a license to live however you want to live, then you haven't really understood it. The first command is consider. Consider as true of your life what Jesus has earned for you. Don't consider it true only for the day of judgment. Consider it true for today and tomorrow and Tuesday as you walk in obedience to Christ. You are united to Christ. That's the first command. The second and third commands build on that because we're not simply united to Christ, but we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who enables to live out what we consider to be true. And hence the second command in verse 12 is, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do you hear how simple he puts it? It, Don't let it. Don't let it rain. Just don't let it. Just don't let it. I mean, it, it doesn't always seem that easy, does it? I'm just not going to let it. But he follows it in the third command in verse 13, showing that much of our sin, and the reason he's just going to don't let it, he's going to show in the third command in verse 13 that much of our sin is of our own conscious making. I mean, he's, when he says in verse 13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Brought from death to life, by the way, by the Holy Spirit. And your members to God, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Twice he uses the word present. Don't present your members yourself for this. Present yourself for that. Like that's active language. That's conscious language. I'm not going to present myself. I'm not going to, I feel this temptation. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to present myself for this. I'm going to present myself for that. The, the, the word indicates conscious choice, and we've said many times, here's how it works over time, these conscious choices that we make because we have considered Jesus has already earned my life He's already conquered death for me. His life counts for mine. And He has given me His Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in me. He's given me that. Because because of that, I I can not present myself here. I'm going to present myself here. He enables me to do that. 
And what happens over time is these little conscious choices that we make to not present myself this way, to present myself that way, what they become are habits. And habits, habits eventually are what move our hearts. Habits move our hearts better than our heads do. And Paul finishes this passage in verse 14 with this reminder that, that, that sin, and this is how he's dunking on the, on the objector in verse 1. He says, you know what? Sin is not going to have dominion over you, and it's precisely because you're not under law. It's not going it, it, to have it precisely because you are under grace and not under law. It's precisely because we're under grace and not under law that sin no longer has dominion over us. Because grace has given us more than the law ever could. The law just says, this is what you must do, but it gives us nothing to do it. Grace reminds us of what is owed, but gives us the ability to do it. Hence, we obey from a place of victory, not for a place of victory. And Paul's going to have plenty else to say about sanctification for the next two and a half chapters. So we're going to stop here. And he's given us plenty to consider as we consider our walk with Christ and growing grace. So for the next five minutes or so, would you take time around your tables? I know that's not much. Uh, do the best you can. Talk about what you learned in this passage.